Friends, thanks. Thanks, Robbie, for the introduction. Thanks for having us here. And, you know, I've been here a couple of times now, and I don't know that I've ever really introduced my family. You'll see kind of a, a different crew each time we're here. But my wife's name is Marcelle. She and I have been married for 27 years, and we've got four kids, unbelievably two who are in college, and a senior in high school, and then a seventh grader. And we um, have been in the Philadelphia area for a little over seven years now, I think. Um, coming from Iowa, so I do have a Midwestern compatriot, and Matt, I think, leading worship here. And, and so... Um, it's really, again, just a joy to be with you. I work for serving leaders. We have an office here in Westchester. I'm uh, based out of Willow Grove, just north of Philadelphia. And we provide care, encouragement, mediation, counseling for pastors, ministry leaders, their families, and normal people as well. And uh, so it's a great opportunity uh, to be able to just come uh, to you. This is something that I do both at the church where we're members. Uh, Marcel and I and our family are members at City Line uh, Church, a PCA church um, in Philadelphia Presbytery, um, but kind of bounce around in a lot of different places to preach. So really pleased to be able to do this for Robbie during his sabbatical and to be with you all. I look forward to meeting you in the days and months to come. All right, we're going to be continuing on in this great book of 1 Samuel. So you can turn in your Bible if you have one, or you can just listen. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, I'm going to read the whole uh, chapter for us here this morning, and then we'll dig in. First Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in the ways, his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and all your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, 
No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to a city. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you and trust you. Lord, the word that you give us today would meet us in maybe a way that we weren't aware of when we came in, but Lord God, that you would speak into our hearts, our minds, that Lord, um, we would be encouraged in this story, messy as it is, of Israel's people, and that Lord God, you would point us to a better way. Lord God, we entrust ourselves to you in this time. And we sit under the authority of your word for the sake of your glory and for our hope and joy in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Give us a king. Um, Well, there's lots of kings out there. And I'm sure you could probably think of a few. There's LeBron. There's Elvis. There is Michael Jackson. Uh, Or some would say even Madonna. My wife would argue about that one. King of pop queen of pop. There is, if you go back to maybe the early days of COVID, there was Joe Exotic, the Tiger King. There's um, Burger King. There is um, the Kennedys, if we get a little bit more serious, or there could be some other political dynasty that we would point to. And it makes sense. We say, let them judge us. Let them be the standard bearers. And then we will live up to that standard of excellence. So LeBron in basketball, and I would argue Michael Jordan in basketball, setting the standard, and then everything is judged according to that standard. Now, there's even a fascination in the United States with the British royal family that I truly don't understand. And there's a fascination with America's equivalent of the British royal family, which would be the Kardashians, which I also don't don't understand. We create some strange kings. Now, I think one of the things that can happen is we do this. As we're pros at making kings, we can actually do that with ourselves. Our heart is king. And so are we really all that much different from the context of this story, which is the time of the judges when everyone did as he or she saw fit what was right in their own eyes. We create a king, sometimes an idealized version of ourselves. So as we look at this passage of scripture, we see that Samuel is now old and he's judged Israel for years and he's at the point of retiring and and beginning presumably his memoirs, but These transitions are are difficult, and we see that throughout Scripture, and there's sort of a hinge. Who's going to lead God's people? So if we look a few chapters back, we'd see Eli's sons. Well, they were scoundrels. They weren't good candidates to lead the people as priests, and now we see Samuel's sons being appointed as judges, but they too were scoundrels. We're told that they took bribes, they perverted justice. So what's the impetus for the people of Israel saying, we've got to get a king? 
We've got to find a king. We've got to find a new leader. Samuel's old. He's going to die. And, and so who's going, to, who's going to take his place? Who's going to be next in line to lead the people of Israel? And here's what's interesting about that. At this time, the people of Israel are actually flourishing. They're doing okay. The ark has been returned from captivity. The Philistines, their arch enemy, had been defeated and subdued. But the Israelites are, are still thinking, what's next? Who's going to lead us? Who's going to take us into the next battle when the Philistines or the Amalekites or some other tribe comes to attack us? What's next? And as so often happens in scripture, they take matters into their own hands. They want a plan. We want a king. Now, we have to remember, this isn't a surprise. Actually, God's law allows for a kingship. A monarchy isn't bad per se in Deuteronomy 17. There's an allowance for it, but with provisions. And if we would read the text, we would really just come up with this summary of the king of Israel would be, well, with good leadership, the people of Israel would embrace God's covenant and the covenant being, I will be your God. You will be my people. Follow me, obey me, love me, trust me, serve me. And you have as this leader of Israel and particularly a king in Deuteronomy 17, the idea that as the king goes, so goes the people. So leadership matters. So that's a, something we can commend the Israelites for. Yeah, it matters who comes after Samuel. Now, this passage today exposes these issues of transition from one leader to the next, from Israel as a tribal entity into a nation. And friends, the, the one thing I want to suggest about this passage today, it's really a simple premise. It always comes down to faith. It always comes down to faith. And this is from the very beginning when our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, they asked, is God really good? Can we trust him? Later, Abraham, will my family really become a great nation? Israel in Egypt, will we escape slavery? In the desert, will God really provide for us? And now, who will reign for us? Who will reign over us? So just three relatively brief points, two questions, and then, and then a warning. So the first question, as Israel is confronting this question of who's going to be our next leader in their call for a king, they're asking this question, what about tomorrow? What happens tomorrow? Yeah, we've had some success. We defeated the Philistines. The ark is back where it's supposed to be. But what about tomorrow, God? Things could go off the rails again. What are you going to do then? What's going to happen then? Who will fight for us? So um, full disclosure, um, I asked for your grace, an umbrella of grace. I used to be a lawyer. And when I was practicing law, I worked for an incredibly difficult boss who was general counsel of the bank where I worked. And when I would drive home every day, I, um, for about a year, I would scream at the windshield in prayer. I don't know if you've ever done that. Um, yelling your prayers. And, and my prayer was really pretty simple. Lord, deliver me. Get me out of this toxic situation, out of this toxic mess. And he did. It took a while, but he did. 
Now, I share that because a few years later, I was then pastoring a church in Northeast Iowa, and and things were going swimmingly, but we came up with a really difficult issue, and we started to have congregational meetings um, revolving around this issue, and these meetings were seemingly endless. They would go on hours at a time, and my kids, we lived in a parsonage right next door. My kids would walk over, and I could see them peeking in through, like, the windows. They weren't stained glass, and, like, is dad still alive? Have they offed him? Is he in the back? They buried him in the back. They would come over because these were fraught with peril. These were the highly um, passionate uh, meetings that we were having. And in the midst of them, did I think back? And as I'm praying, God deliver me. Was I thinking back? God, yeah, you came through when in the worst of times when I needed to get out of this toxic situation practicing law. Are you going to come through? I wasn't thinking about, yeah, that. God did that. He was faithful. I was thinking, no, God, are you going to do it this time? Really? Are you going to? Are you, I'm not sure. I'm scared. Are you going to come through for me? And even when things get resolved, are you going to come through next time? What if something like this comes up again? No, it's easy to be wrapped up in the moment. And it's easy to get caught up in these two eternities, yesterday and tomorrow. You forget what God has done in the past, and and you're unsure about what he's going to do in the future. Is he going to come through then? I'm not sure. So now let's think about the Israelites in the context of this narrative of 1 Samuel. A generation has passed since what we read in chapters 4 and 5. And if you remember that, the people of Israel are like, we're getting defeated by the Philistines. Let's take this talisman, this lucky rabbit's foot of the ark into battle, and then maybe we'll win. Well, a generation has passed from then. And if we would look at chapter 7, they're actually doing pretty well. In verse 8, they're still having difficulties, but what do they do? They cry out to God and God delivers them. And that's the pattern that they have, crying out to God, deliver us. And then he does. Now, they forget. It's easy to worry about. What's next? What about tomorrow? Who's going to fight for us? That's this question that they're struggling with. And the answer to that question, well, God is. God is going to deliver you as he has done so many times in the past. And yet they still say, can we trust God? It's a faith issue. All right, that's the first question. The second question they ask is, why can't we have a king like the other nations? And in verses four through nine in our passage today, you get a little bit of a back and forth. It's them asking Samuel or saying to Samuel, we want a king like the nations around us. And Samuel not being very excited about this idea and, and, and going to God. And then God says, give them what they want. And they, they reiterate, yes, this is what we want, Samuel. We want a king like the other nations around us. So let's think about this for a moment. It makes sense. It does make sense. Leadership matters. Samuel had appointed his sons as judges to kind of follow in his footsteps, to be those who are the intercessors, the representatives of the people of Israel. But we get this idea that maybe they're not going to be the main ones because he puts them in the southernmost area of Israel in Beersheba. And we read that they're scoundrels, as I mentioned before. They perverted justice. Now, This is important because Samuel doesn't get let off the hook from making this decision to appoint his sons. 
Actually, if we look at Judges 8, we'd see Gideon was faced with the same temptation. It's just going to be a dynasty, a family that's going to rule as judges in Israel. But, but Gideon says, no, so, oh, oh, warns the people of Israel, this is not good. All of our best leaders fail. Yeah, it's great to have a leader to intercede, but God is your king. He's to be king over you. So we ask, all right, what's behind this request? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I, before Easter, when I was here, I brought up this Irish writer, Paul Kingsnorth. Um, and, and I was reading an article by him, and, and you can try this on for size. It's, it's, it's just his saying, um, but I, I, it rings true to me. He wrote that there is a throne at the heart of every culture, and someone's going to sit on it. There's a throne at the heart of every culture, and somebody's going to sit on it. All right, so for Israel, who's going to sit on that throne? They're rejecting not only Samuel, we read, but, but God. And so we say, what is this? What's going on? Well, this is idolatry. Always going after other gods, we read in verses 7 and 8. The Israelites had already, in chapters prior, turned God into a sort of a talisman, into a, a sort of idol, in the same way that the Israelites had done in the desert in their wanderings. When, uh, If you remember Moses going up to Mount Horeb, and Aaron is left with the people, and they create a golden calf, something tangible that they can manipulate. That's what their history is. Now... We see that throughout Samuel's narrative, as he recounts God's leadership over Israel, the people again and again reject God. They get in a jam, then they cry out. But now in 1 Samuel chapter 8, there's no jam. There's no problem. Things are pretty good. There's really just this desire to be like the nations around them substituting the living God for a human God, small g God. It's idolatry. The Israelites aren't crying out, Lord, save us from some perceived threat, but instead saying, give us a king to save us for tomorrow because we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Now, I think we always have to make the connection. Yeah, this is a long time ago on the other side of the ocean. And, and it seems like, uh, how could there be anything in common with us now, 21st century Americans, with uh, Middle Eastern uh, Israelites? Well, I think that this might ring true to some of us. And, and I don't know why I thought of this, but think about maybe one of the gods that we have today is ease and comfort. I just want to be comfortable. God, just give me that. And, you know, we can look in our fridge and we can look in our pantry. I've got all kinds of food. So God, thanks for all that you've done, but really we don't need you. Um, I've got other gods. I've got a full cupboard and as long as that's filled and, and I'm being satisfied that way, I've got ease and comfort. It's all good. I don't need you. So here, here's a, just a challenge um, for you. Every morning when you wake up, even as your pantry or fridge might be full, you pray the Lord's Prayer. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. I acknowledge that I need you desperately today and tomorrow. I'm not as reliant on my job, on my family, on my finances, my credit cards, my bank account, as I am on you to provide for me. 
So it was a way of just acknowledge, uh, acknowledging this before God. God, I need you to provide for me everything that I need. Thank you for the blessings that I do have. But Lord, I pray that you would provide for me. All right, that's an aside. Um, give us a king. Do we do this in our contemporary culture? Well, I think the world does, and we talked about the kings that we, we've created over the years. But the church, does the church do this? Um, I think so. I think so. Um, why is it that we long so much for our churches to be like corporate America? Innovate. Make sure you're on social media. Do things like the rest of the world does them. We, we sort of have this Christianese way of keeping up with the Joneses. And, and it really, I think, comes down to this. We just, we just kind of want to fit in. We kind of want to do what everybody else in the world does. So this is going back to the 90s. Those of you maybe uh, my similar type age can relate to this. There was a time when you would go into like, a, there used to be these things called Christian bookstores. You would go into a Christian bookstore and they would have a music section. And they would have little blurbs about the artists and some of whom you, know, you had never heard of before. But I remember being in one and it was, if you like Jennifer Lopez, you'll love Jackie Velasquez. Horrible stuff. If you like Nirvana, you'll love DC Talk. I actually do like DC Talk. But it was kind of, it was weird. Like, we're just like everybody else. And you can go get a cappuccino over here too while you browse. And there's something like, yeah, that's great and it's good and everything. But no, we're different. If any of you have ever been to Austin, Texas, you'll maybe see these signs they've got all over the place. And it's kind of been corporatized now, but keep Austin weird. Keep Austin, you'll see that. If you look that up on the interwebs, you'll see that. It's all over, graffiti all over. Keep Austin weird. We're not like Dallas. We're not like San Antonio. We're not like Houston. We're full of hippies and, and people that listen to, to uh, Willie Nelson and Jerry Jeff Walker and, and indie bands that nobody's ever heard of. We're different than everybody else in Texas. And I think that as Christians, we've got to take on that mantra. Keep Christianity weird. We're different. We are. We're called to be holy, set apart, not like everybody else around us. Be different. We live with humility, with repentance. We handle hope, conflict differently. We have a different outlook, possibly, than the New York Times or the Washington Post. We strive to please God and not man. Oh, but it's tempting to be just like the world. Maybe they'll like us if we're just like them. Maybe they'll like us. Um, and I, I think as we even distill this down to my church, City Line Church, and this church here, God has called you to be different. Different from the community at large, you're Christians, you're followers of Jesus, you're beholden to God, but also different from other churches. You are called to this particular place at this particular time in this particular neighborhood to minister to God's glory for the joy of those people that you come in contact with. That's your calling. It's unlike probably many churches around you. Now, I work with a number of pastors who are thinking about becoming former pastors. That's what, that's what I do. Um, and I've seen this for 30 years. We, we do this with our pastors. 
and I'm not necessarily speaking of Robbie or my own pastor. We're in the middle of a search, so I guess that doesn't matter. But, but maybe it is for us. We're, we're looking like somebody who has evangelism of a Stephen Furtick, the preaching of John Piper, the counseling of a, a, a Paul Tripp. Um, and, and even then, it's like, yeah, no, our pastor is not our king. Our elders aren't our kings. They are our shepherds to equip the saints to do the work of the king and to glorify the king and to love the king with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's who we are. Jesus is our king. All right, that's my second point. The third, final point. The story is a reminder, a warning. Be careful what you ask for. In verses 10 through 18, Samuel gives them this warning. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. I'm using a lot of personal uh, illustrations. Sorry about that. Um, but usually if I, if I do give like me illustrations, it's like what not to do. And so um, bear with me there. But I asked God when I was 15 years old, I think I've told Marshall this, I asked God that Mary Hubble would be my wife. <laughs> Praise God that he did not answer that prayer. What did I know? Praise God that he didn't answer my prayer. How many hidden blessings come from God not answering our prayers? Now, as we look at this passage, as we look at verses 10 through 18, we see this word take six times. Yeah, you want a king? That's your prayer. That's your desire, people of Israel. You want a king like the other nations? Here's how it's going to go for you. They're going to take, 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 take. So the people of Israel really want to exchange their holy position their unique position as the people of God, be just like the rest. Even when they're warned that a fat, bloated bureaucracy will take and take. And the people of Israel are like, that's okay. That's cool. Now, there is grace here. God ultimately gives the people of Israel a king. And we can point maybe to David, a man after his own heart. But David, too, was a bit of a mess. And it takes only one generation for the monarchy to go off the rails, much in this way that Samuel describes in our passage today. All the things warned about come to fruition. Horses from Egypt, many wives, gold and silver, Solomon. And it goes generally downhill even from there. Be careful what you ask for. There's something terrifying about what C.S. Lewis describes as two different types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Your will be done, God. And those to whom God says, all right, your will be done. God gives the people of Israel ultimately what they ask for ultimately in his grace gives them and us what we don't deserve. It's only by God's grace that the Israelite story and our own ends with God's chosen king, Jesus. It's different from what they would have imagined. It's a Philippians 2 kind of king, one who would humble himself, take on the form of a servant and die for his people. If we think back to what we just celebrated a week ago, you remember Pilate's question. He asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You remember what Jesus answered? 
My kingdom is not of this world. And, and Pilate could not understand that. A king who would lay aside, who would veil his glory, and of whom it would be said, um, birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Homeless, poverty-stricken, and a king who would lay down his life on behalf of sinners like me and you. A king who would bear our sins in his body on a cross A king who would die the accursed death of a covenant breaker in our place. Jesus is king. As we think about this king and how it's juxtaposed with all of the kings that we create, that I create. Jesus as king sets a perfect standard and actually fulfills it. Not just for himself, but for us. Jesus is king who fights our battles against our greatest foes, sin, death, and hell. And he wins. Jesus is king who gives us righteousness and justice. Gives us rather than take, take, take. All right. So there was a professor I had at Covenant Seminary. He would say, when you get done with the sermon, you always think of a person standing in the back row with arms crossed and kind of a scowl on their face and just imagine them asking the question, so what? So what? Yeah, that's great. We read the passage and um, maybe I have a little bit more understanding of what was said. What do, you, what do you want from me? So a lot of times what we want to do is we want to say, here's what's true. Here's the indicative. Here's what's true. Now, in light of this truth, here's what you do. What's true, what to do. And what to do is the imperative. And the imperative oftentimes, to my shame, is like uh, one thing I always laugh about when people do it to me, but do better, try harder, right? It's like, man, that's discouraging. I'm not going to give you any do this, do that this morning. The imperative is simply be encouraged. Be encouraged. In Christ Jesus, the search for the king is over. Jesus is king, the ultimate king. He's gracious. He's kind. He defends us from our enemies. He intercedes on our behalf. He's our representative before our father. And he's leading us to a home prepared for us. There's a, a passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. And it's a, it's a praise. It's a worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if he is your king, there is nothing that can separate you from him. And your inheritance is guaranteed. It's undefiled. It's waiting for you. And Jesus has led the way. If we look at Hebrews 12, Jesus has endured the cross on our behalf. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Who's leading us to our ultimate home. So that we receive the reward of a king. Because of our humble servant, King Jesus. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your plan of redemption. Thank you, Lord God, that you did not leave me or us 
continually scrambling to find that next king who we think will satisfy us, those idols that inevitably disappoint. Lord God, you've given us the true king, Jesus, Lord, Savior, Messiah, anointed one, Lord of all creation. And we, Lord God, have a living hope in Jesus. So Lord, would you bless us with a deeper joy, a deeper faith in Christ, not only what he's done yesterday, but what he's doing now and what ultimately he will do for his glory and our joy. We pray in his name. Amen.